0: are listening to 1066 Wasn't All That, a podcast showcasing ongoing PhD research in history and related fields. I'm Victoria Styles, but you can safely forget that information because this month's interview was put together by Benazir Kamal, a fourth-year student in history and German at the University of Aberdeen. I will hand you straight over to him.
1: My guest this episode is Emily McGrath, a PhD candidate from Aberdeen University. Please say hello, Emily. Hello. Thank you very much for um, agreeing to do this. Sorry? Can you please tell us um, what you're researching and give us a brief summary of what you're doing?
0: Yeah, um, I research Native American history, looking specifically at um, changing Indian identity in the early 20th century in Oklahoma. Okay, so
1: can you give us a brief summary of um, how Oklahoma looked before European settlement, the various tribes and nations of people that inhabited the area?
0: Yeah. So Oklahoma is quite um, unique in many ways, um, but partly due to what happened later on. So initially, in some ways, if you think about before the borders of statehood, um, then Oklahoma was much like other places. Tribes moved. Um, In and out. Um, So, if I give you an example of one tribe who were in Oklahoma in the 18th and 19th centuries, their history had begun a lot earlier um, in Canada, um, and they moved eventually down to Oklahoma. So that's kind of a situation of the complexity of tribal movement in America. Um, But if you then again take that tribe, then when they were there in Oklahoma, they were very much as you might have imagined: um, existed with men hunting buffalo women um, collecting plants, growing gardens, that sort of existence. And um, so that's uh, how things looked in that way. But the big thing for Oklahoma that changed its history is that the removal period, when tribes in the southeast, the big tribes, Cherokee, that kind of thing, were moved by the um, American government. Then they were moved to Oklahoma, broadly speaking. Um, and so then um, that's. Okay, so that's moving after European settlement, but that just gives you kind of an overview of kind of moving from one to the
1: other. All right, so um, basically, as I understand it, um, the Oklahoma area at the start of the 20th century was a sort of Indian, large Indian reservation. And um, there's, sort of these, there's lots of these groups to get together in this one big area. Is that, is that accurate, more or less?
0: Yeah, there is there are a number of reservations, and you've got a mixture of tribes that had been in Oklahoma at the time of the removal period, and um, such as the Arapaho and the Cheyenne, for example, um, which is sort of in the southwest of Oklahoma, and then particularly in the the north, um, the northeast, um, you get tribes like the Choctaw, the Cherokee, Seminoles who have moved there. So you've got this mixture of these big tribes that have more political power and more political connections and tribes that had been there initially. And there's a mixture of big reservations and smaller land areas. Um, and that intersects also with um, policies that were happening to change the reservation process um, thing through the allotment policy, which is cutting up the Indian lands. And like that. So there's a, a mixture of things going on.
1: Okay, so um, now your research is uh, focused entirely on the sort of early 20th century. Can you explain sort of why this is a this period is particularly interesting?
0: So, firstly, the actual state of Oklahoma as it as it is comes into being in, in 1907. So before that, you do have Oklahoma, but in two different ways. You have two territories: the Indian Territory and the Indian uh, and the Oklahoma Territory. And they in the 1907 combined, to so form one state. So. To begin with, the actual state of have didn't actually exist before, so that's kind of something to bear in mind. Um, but also because this is a kind of a big period of change in America generally, so that's another thing to bear in mind. Yes. The progressive era, lots of um, movements of reform, modernization, ideological change, so that and that impacts on Native American society as well. So that's the second thing to bear in mind. Um, and the third thing is that prior to Um, 20th century, the way that Native Americans really existed was very much um, in a tribal sense. So there were some um, tribal connections between tribes, there were some, some tribal connections between tribes that had similar languages similar practices, had connections, but in more so than not, tribes were um, their own entities. They had their own belief structures, their own ways of being, as it were. Um, but in the early 20th century, that begins to be the beginning of um, Indian identity as claimed by Native Americans themselves, as opposed to Indian identity as a classification by European settlers and then white Americans of, of Native Americans. Um, so that's the beginning of what is termed as the modern pan-Indian movement, um, which kind of has developed from
1: that. Yeah, and um, I think w- one of um, the main examples of this is um, in 1902, um, five tribes tried to form an actual state in the Indian Territory. It was called the State of um, Sequoia, I, th- I believe? That's correct. That? Yeah, no, that's, that's
0: correct pronunciation. <laughs> so, yeah, you're right, um, that, that did happen um th- there are lots of um kind of political issues that surrounded the statehood of Oklahoma generally. There were some, not just from um, the Native Americans who lived in Oklahoma, but also surrounding politics, like Democrats Republicans with this state. Which way would this state go? Would it be better as one or two? So it wasn't just um, from Native Americans that these issues were um, arriving that time, but there certainly was this push, as you say, the Sequoia Convention, um, which tried to have this Indian state. Um, in, it depends on who you listen to about the kind of chances of success in this state that essentially it didn't happen. Um, and I think the impact in certainly in some quarters was significant and a number of people were quite disappointed not to have had that control, what they thought would have been anyway, control over the sort of the destiny of Native Americans in that region or within the United, the American, um, United States. Um, but I'll just give you one specific example. There's a historian called Bernard Strickland who is part Osage and part Cherokee, um, and he grew up in Oklahoma. And for um, sort the of um, centenary of the, what would have been the Sequoia State, he wrote uh, an article about it and he said that for him, um, we well actually put it as that the Sequoia um, Convention was a lost but haunting dream of an Indian state named Sequoia. And he suggested that it actually loomed very much large in his childhood. So wherever they went, for example, if they went to the dentist, then his mom would say, look, that building over there would have been the Sequoia State House or things like that. Um, so, uh, certainly from his perspective, whether that's a broad thing but there at least in some areas there was a sense at which
1: something that could have been was lost. And um, was this idea of a Sisquire State very unifying for what I assume is um sort of all these very, very disparate groups of people who um, who you've already said have actually had their origins all over the place in the sort of broad United States North America area? Or was there lots of infighting?
0: Yeah, I think I mean Because I think it was a political movement in some regards. So it comes from the political leadership within certain uh, communities, like the Creek community, for example. There's a lot of political people who are involved with creek politics, and they kind of push this at a political level. So there's an element to which it's political movement, as it were. Um, And so that means, I suppose, that it wasn't unified. It wasn't all people everywhere were calling for this as such. Or perhaps they didn't know about the process that was happening because you've got a big variety of, of education and um, engagement with political, tribal, national affairs at this point within Native American society. Um, so I think there certainly is a, an element of to which it might you know, people latched onto us as the possibility of an Indian-controlled area, um, but it wasn't just as simple as to say that everyone was kind of on board with, um, the history that I study, you just become aware of the real complexities that exist, and that there isn't um, uh, one particular unified position within amongst Native Americans. So.
1: Where do you do your research, um, and uh, what kind of sources are you actually looking at?
0: Well, um, the two predominant um, sources that I research have actually researched through online access. Um, The first one is called um, the Doris Duke Oral History Project, and that's um, a big range of about over 700 interviews that were conducted in the uh, 1960s with uh, Native Americans who lived in Oklahoma. It's a big project run by five different universities, but the University of Oklahoma just focused on uh, Native Americans who lived there. So a lot of my research has been going through these interviews and um, looking kind of at the earlier period through this memory of um, Native Americans Um, and then one thing that I've looked at is called the Indian School Journal, which was published by um, the Chiloco boarding school in Oklahoma. So that was one of the boarding schools that was um, created to try and assimilate young students into American society. So it was based in Oklahoma and they published a Um, A journal, um, and it's a way of looking at how um, Indian identity was sort of exported from Oklahoma, and looking at the incongruities between an establishment that tried to uh, stamp out Indianness, as it were, and but yet marketed this journal as an Indian journal and used kind of sold some Indian products and used some kind of Indian um, branding and things like that so looking at that kind of difference so those are two big sources that I look at but I have also looked um, used the archives in DC um, Washington DC to get some more kind of information uh, British Library in London as well um, but that's kind of mainly that um, the main two sources have been those two that I mentioned
1: okay and um, have you Right, this is very interesting just for me personally. But is all this stuff in English, or is, or are there um, other languages that you've had to learn to actually have a look at this stuff?
0: Most of the stuff that I've looked at is all in English, um, and uh, some, and this is a possible sort of. Um, weakness in the interviews is that they have already been translated, so you don't have any control over the translation because these are transcripts that I mainly work with, and you don't have any control over sort of the initial languages. And because I look at a really broad range of um, types, I'm really looking at all the tribes who were interviewed, Um, so it would have been a bit impractical to try and (laughs) learn a big selection of languages because there aren't just one sort of in Oklahoma. Um, So no, I haven't actually learned any language. Um, I think if you had more time, it it would be nice to kind of go down there and be able to kind of access sources in their own languages
1: and um, that's not something i've been able to do for in my phd maybe just sort of um following on from that was something happening oklahoma like was happening in um Indu- india as in hindustani india in that um the language of the occupiers actually became kind of a source, kind of a sort of unifier because they're, all these tribes are able to communicate with each other in this sort of mutual tongue.
0: Yeah, that's that absolutely spot well on. yeah. Um, particularly through the education process, so particularly taking um, children away from the parents, sending them to the boarding schools, for example, um, but also some of the other schools where their own languages aren't allowed to be spoken, um, you probably listeners will have heard about um, this kind of Indian education policy where it was very militaristic, you know, to turn were beaten for speaking their native tongues. But yes, the flip side of that is it does give people this common language to speak, and um, lots of the movements that sort of push Indian identity that are organised, they... Are in English, you know, people write in English and things like that. So while there are um, during this period, so for example, some Cherokee newspapers write in Cherokee and things like that. And um, so while there is still some pushing of native languages, and there is actually almost a generation who very much forgets how to even speak the native languages of their of their parents,
1: for example. Another um, source of unification for all these peoples is um, the development of the Native American church. Can you tell us something about that, please?
0: Um, Yeah, so um, the Native American church comes out of um, the peyote movement, um, which was sort of linked to um, traditional beliefs um, in Oklahoma and kind of with some of the more widespread um, things like the the ghost dancing um, that kind of led to the massacre of Wounded Knee. These things kind of are predecessors of that. Um, but essentially eventually the Native American church is, is incorporated to protect itself from being stopped because a lot of the people didn't approve of the practices um, of the religion. There are people, um, I don't know a, a lot about it, but I know um, some of the practices involved um, like smoking of certain leaves and things like that. So there was a, um, a lot of people... In some sort of authority, as it were, who, who didn't approve these practices, and eventually one of the ways to combat it was to uh, incorporate the church and kind of establish it officially, and that protected it um, and sort of religious freedom ground um, But that's kind of the the grounding of it. That the other impact is that Oklahoma essentially become, eventually becomes a sort of heartland of this movement. So not only is it stuck there, but people come to big events that exist there, and people travel, and there's a sense of which Oklahoma is the kind of ground zero, so people kind of come back through, and um, it's a place to, to visit. But there is um, just this um, sense that across tribes, it moves from into, uh, into other tribes, essentially. So it, it, um, it becomes a unifying factor. Uh, the, one of the interviews that I have sort of talks about the practice of religious belief as being an Indian way of doing it, and I think that kind of gives an idea that, that it, it actually incorporates some elements of Christianity as well, it's up to some people, but it becomes a, specifically an Indian um, way of having a religion,
1: Yeah, so it's um, it's kind of, we would like to say it's sort of a homogenation of, all, of um, all the various practices of the tribes, with a little bit of Christianity thrown in as well.
0: Yeah, I I suppose not not so much, but I think the tribes that begin at kind of southwest of Oklahoma, it does very much begin from there, but yes, it does bring in elements of Christianity and some elements, other elements of Indian spirituality, as it were.
1: We're um, sort of moving towards the end of the interview now. Um, can you um, tell us anything interesting that cancer won't make it into your thesis? At this stage, I don't really have anything
0: that I'm particularly leaving out. I guess my research has been quite targeted as such. Um so there are possibly some things that I looked at from um, some of the other boarding schools, um, which... I won't kind of get to be in, but I'm afraid I don't really have a lot of stuff that I'm not putting in at the moment.
1: Do you have any advice for um, budding PhD candidates who are just starting out, um, and also is there anything that you would do differently when starting out yours?
0: Um, I guess they're mainly practical things, Um, so the first thing would be sort out problems early on, don't just sort of think because you're starting out you shouldn't kind of speak to the department at your university and get things kind of sorted out say so get writing as soon as possible, um, and then a really big thing would be kind of network, get involved with your department, go to kind of seminars, go to conferences as early as soon as possible. Even if you don't have stuff to present, I'd say go and kind of experience that kind of what's on offer, give you ideas about your own work as well as that kind of thing. So yeah. and read PhD comments because it's fun when you're
1: yeah. like having PhD depression. <laughs> ah, okay. All right, so um. Thank you very much for um, agreeing to do this interview with me. You're welcome.
0: If you'd like more information about the topics covered on this podcast, or if you'd like to talk about your own research or suggest a guest for us, then visit 1066podcast.blogspot.co.uk. Thank you for listening.